Good morning. Hope you rested well and ready to go. What a beautiful period of worship and song. Uh, we're blessed tremendously with such good talent leading that scene. We've been talking about last night, building faith, and today we'll continue along those same lines. And I appreciate the opportunity to worship just a few minutes ago with so many of those songs about our faith and about Jesus and about His Holy Word. And what uh, a blessing it is to be able to study God's Word and then sing about that together. I'd like to show you a, a quick clip here. And um, it'll be obvious it's, it's about MIT's robotics development. And I'd like for you to just look at this robot. And as you look at it, I'd like for you to think, uh, what did they have in mind when they designed uh, this robot? watching the news or <laughs> it looked like a dog it did and what did you say cheetah okay let's let's hear from them and see what they were looking at to design this cheetah is the fastest uh, four-legged animal in the world and then we would like to make our robot run fast like a cheetah <laughs> Okay, if you look, if you look at the early prototypes and you see this coming through the years, it is amazing the the progress that is being made. You know, at first it was the idea of just how to get it to balance on its own on four legs. And then they began from there even to study the movement of the legs and even the change of the gait of, of uh, the run. And then you saw for yourself even the idea in slow motion of it to be able to jump. It leaves the ground in the very same format, or at least as close as they could duplicate, format to jump hurdles. And you heard them say, you know, in this they're going to be able to help individuals uh, with better prosthetic limbs. Uh, they even are thinking down the line of designing vehicles that will either transport goods or people, but you won't need roads because it'll have that ability to just travel like an animal travels through the woods, we might say. But the point in all that for this morning's lesson is, is just an exercise of thought. And uh, Stephen Covey is the one in recent decades 
that, that really made this a kind of a popular uh, saying, and that is beginning with the end in mind. Uh, when you think about building the faith in our youth, as we talked some about last night, but then you think about maintaining that faith. What I'd like to do today is, is kind of combine those two for us to think about what are we imitating when we say, I want you to build your faith or I want you to maintain your faith. Do we have an end in mind? You know, when, when we look at structures, beautiful buildings, you know, when, when you go into a building and, it, you, you know, your jaw just kind of drops, you know, wow, look at this architecture. You know, before that building ever existed in reality, it existed first in blueprints. There was an architectural rendering of it where, where it was, hey, look, this is what we can build. Take a look at it. Is this the way you want it to look? Are there changes you want us to make? They can lay out the blueprints. This is what floor one will look like. This is what the west wing will look like. This is what floor two will look like. Is this what you have in mind? Why? Why do you talk like that? Because if you're going to build something significant, you always begin with the end in mind. Some of us have flown down here. When we get on the plane, there will be something in common with every plane that flies out today of commercial airline and supposedly every other plane, plane that should take off. And it is that before the flight will ever take place, the flight plan has already been recorded. Before you leave the ground, the destination is already set. And what will be required to get from point A to point B? How many pounds of fuel? What, what are the storms that we see along the way that, that we might could predict? And with that in mind, what elevation will we travel because of these things? What crosswinds do we expect to blow through? And how will we adjust for those? You know, another statement that Covey made famous through all of his many, you know, seven habits of highly effective, and you fill in the blank, all those books that he wrote, was he made famous the idea that a, a plane, a jet, is off course 90% of the time. In other words, you're leaving point A to point B, but because of the crosswinds, and just because of, of, of like the simple fact that we think about when you're driving down the road and you're on a straight stretch of road, what do you find yourself constantly doing with your hands and steering wheel? You're constantly doing the correction motion. Uh, back when I was a young adult man with absolutely no money and a wife and two children and a third one on the way. Uh, but just before that third one was on the way, and back when there was like one and a half children, uh, we were a one-car family. Has anybody here ever been a one-car family? Wow. Going from one car to two cars is almost going as good as going from no kids to kids. Just kidding. It's not that easy. But wow. If you have always been a two-car family, just say that you're blessed and you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue what it's like to get up every day of the year and try to figure out each other's schedule. That becomes either a ritual every night or every morning. Hey, what's the plan tomorrow? Where do you have to go? Where do I have to go? Okay, how are we going to do that? Oh, we can't both show up at the same place, same time. we got to give some... Uh, oh, man. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I saw an old Ford pickup for sale on the side of the road. Oh, 1970 model, white Ford pickup, never been restored. And... Uh, and to drive that old truck, that was my old truck for a lot of years. I'd, I'd, I'd park in clergy parking at the hospital. I'd park in clergy parking. I remember one time I, I was walking away from it, way across the parking lot, I heard, Hey! Hey! 
hey! I turn around and look, and, and the security guard, he says, that's for clergy! I said, I'm a preacher! He said, oh! <laughs> you, know, you don't expect to see that out of the old Ford pick. I loved it. I loved it. All right, but, but to get back around, we got to get to moving. we got a lot of stuff more important than what I'm saying right now to cover. But, uh, but what I loved about that old pickup was when you, know, when you have a pickup, everybody wants to borrow it. You know, I'd say to them, hey, if you can keep it in the road, you can drive it. And, and they would laugh. I said, no, I'm serious. Before you leave pulling out of my street, you need to be very aware of the fact that the catch zone is over at right at 5 o'clock and all the way back over at 7 o'clock. And you better be ready to catch it because you're going to be going down this straight stretch and you're going to bump it a couple of times here and bump it here. And that's the way you're going to drive down. It, one of my buddies, he didn't believe me. I told him straight up. I told him just like that. And he, I guess, thought I was kidding. He pulled out and almost hit my mailbox right out. And he stopped in the road. He got out and he said, you're not kidding. I said, be careful, all right? Just don't hurt anybody. But we think about, we think about what, what are those? Even when we have nice, newer automobiles, we still make adjustments going down the road. We constantly make adjustments. Do we realize that when we're raising our children, we must be aware of what the end is. And I say to that as if we all do it. And I want to challenge that in a few moments. But more than that, I, I hope that together we will be motivated that no one will go back home. Whether you're an elder, you're a youth minister, whatever role you play in the life, or, or you have your own children. No one will go back home and say, we're just going to fly by the seat of our pants. We're just going to hope our kids turn out good. But that everybody will give substantial time talking about this to whoever, if it's, if it's your youth group, you need to be sitting down with the deacons, the elders, the parents, whoever it is that's a strong spiritual core group. And we need to begin to define what is the ending point. Do they graduate 12th grade and leave you? If so, when do they come into your group? Sixth grade? When they come in at sixth grade or whatever grade it is for you, when they come in, the day they step in, do you know what the end is going to be? And if you don't, you're flying by the seat of your pants. But see, also the problem is, if you don't know, you can't instill the things that need to be there, but then also you can't keep them on course. Remember, we're constantly making adjustments. You're not making adjustments if you don't know what you're going to. If you don't know what you're going to, the crosswind is blowing, you know what? You're just continuing to drive. And you think, this is great. Our kids are doing really good. But you see, this ending point not only becomes a point of direction, so to speak, an indirect, but all along the way, it's the map. It's the compass where we can look and say, wow, we're getting a little bit off course here. Let's, let's bring this back in a little bit. And so, with that in mind, <clears throat> I want to ask you, Kirk, you're always uh, very good at notes. Will you take notes on what everybody says over the next couple minutes? Will that be good? All right. Here, here's what I want us to do as an exercise. And obviously, just spur the moment, this exercise with this group can be really a uh, really good list we'll probably come out with. But we're not saying take this list home with you. We're saying do something like this at home except maybe spend a whole retreat on it and, and, and pray about it a lot and plan about it a lot and then maybe come back later and finalize it. But if you were going to say... By the time the youth I work with uh, graduate from high school, what do you want them to be? What would be markers of identity that you would say, 
if they could walk out of the ministry that I do with them at 18 looking like this, and, and we're not going for just real, real detailed here as much as we are characteristics, and, and if it is going to be kind of a detail, it's going to be a big detail, okay? And so uh, let's, let's, let's throw out, what, 10 or 12? I know we could probably do 30 or 40, but since we won't take the whole morning doing that, what, what would you want them to be? Okay, and so in that you've implied disciple themselves, and then which in that, if we're honest with that term, is a disciple maker. But yes, a disciple maker. Um, one of my goals for my group of boys was that they would have a devotional and they would invite me to it. Like, you know, I've always planned all these, and one day it happened. I got a phone call and they said, we're going to be at so-and-so's house and they've got it all covered and we want, you want to come. All right, they can take charge of events. All right. Defending their faith, being able to stand up and say, this is why I believe what I do, to someone who may ask, to be able to defend it and know it. Okay. Defend their faith. Spiritually self-reliant. All right. Elaborate just for a moment. Uh, they're able to sustain their faith, their beliefs, their ethics, their decisions based on how they see themselves in the spiritual stuff, I think. Yeah. You know, when you say that, biblically, the, the thing, the one that pops in my mind is Daniel. You know, how, how are you ripped out of your home country, your home people? And then one of the first few lines we read about him in the Bible is what? He said in his heart, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Some way, self-reliant, beautiful, beautiful. I want them to have the ability to study the Bible with solid study techniques. Understand it and be able to make decisions based on scripture. Sweet. That's good. And, and that, that right there would have to be a huge part of the foundation of what we're talking about right here. He said to be able to study the Bible. What was your description of techniques? Healthy? Solid. solid. With solid techniques. And if we can do that, we're giving them, you know, it's, you can give them a fish or you can teach them to fish. If we do that, we are teaching them to fish so that out of that they can make disciples. They can be wise and plan events and, and all these other things. I want them to know the beauty and benefits of restoring New Testament Christianity. Yes. Yes. Man, wow. My mind goes a million directions there. But yes. Uh, to know the beauty and the benefits of New Testament Christianity. Kurt, I know you're taking notes, but we're going to expect you to at least throw out one because... You, uh, I can't write the thing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, hey, from my from my perspective, from my perspective, seeing the years of wisdom working with youth here, it's pretty awesome to be able to do this little exercise with the ones that's in this room. Grow into their own faith. Okay, that it, great, and and in a moment that will almost transition to the rest of this lesson. Grow into their own faith. Like, if we're going to maintain faith, the only way faith can be maintained is somewhere along the way, it must stop being, well, mom and dad's faith, my church's faith, and somewhere along the way, it has to become my faith. And it's all right when it's younger for it to be the other way. That's kind of the way God designed it. But we've got to grow. By the time they leave, that's not okay. Where, a Christ, where they are not only called a Christian, but they are a Christian in their lives. Yeah. Yes, I like that. Not called a Christian, but are a Christian. All right, a couple more. We'll wrap up here. 
want them to have a, a reverence and respect for God. Yeah. Where they they do it out of a out of not an obligation, but because they have a passion to, to serve God. Yes. And and you know, last night we talked about how much culture can influence. I mean, indirectly, I mean, to a degree, we talked about how much culture can influence. And, and what you're talking about there, our culture is so irreverent. And um, so, yeah, we're going to have to be intentional. If we raise children up in our, our if we raise them in their faith, uh, it's going to be intentional that they're reverent because they're not going to pick it up anywhere else uh, except from us. All right, Kirk, what would you throw out? But last four, I'm doing this to serve others. Yeah. You know, we, we've got to remember that the Lord said it many times that love is the greatest. Uh, he'd say these three, the greatest is. The first and greatest commandment is above all these things put on. Over and over. Love. And so we do, we do, we must teach our children to love God and to love others. All right, one more. Was there some... <clears throat> to be active members of the Lord's church, not just these three. Yes. Yes. We have, we must figure that one out. We must. And it's wonderful that kids love a youth group. It's wonderful that they, it is. It's just wonderful. But it is terrible if we fail them to the point that they never understand uh, kind of that beauty of the, the church uh, because all they have been introduced to is a youth group. And, uh, and so we need to, are we going to fudge one more? Well, in my area, baptism for the remission of sins, and why? And yeah. how do I teach that? That's the goal. Yes. And with that, I, I, and we've kind of probably, I, of course I can't see the list in my mind right now, but you, know, you mentioned baptism for the remission of sins, and, and then it's, we've got to make sure that they have a, uh, a committed respect for the Word of God in the sense that God says it. That settles it. You know, I, I think about when I was in my young 20s and I was teaching a Bible class and an older guy was sitting there that was really one of the most powerful people in our town. And uh, here I was, my young 20s, and he was older and very powerful. And he would, he would kind of look like he was dozing off half the time. He didn't miss a word, you said. And, and so I remember that this seemed innocent enough. I said, you know, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that I just thought really nailed it. And it said... God settles it, and I believe it, and that settles it. God says it, I believe it, and that settles it. And, and uh, he kind of went, <coughs> Son, uh, that's not right. I said, really? I said, what, what should it be then? And he said, God said it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. <laughs> and I said, Corrected. Well said. And, um, and, and you know, what if, what if we could get 18-year-old youth walking out the door really believing that? That God says it. It doesn't matter how many people say that He doesn't mean what He says there, that it's cultural and etc. Uh, when He says just the opposite, it's not cultural. It goes back to the order of creation. All right, so who are we going to believe? Are we going to believe all these professors at my school that says it is cultural? Are we going to believe God when God says, no, it's a matter of the order of creation? And, and look, if we can't have our 18-year-olds at that point, 
they can go to a lot of our private schools today and they're going to be misled. And so we either have to have them ready or they will be misled. And, and so we've got a challenge. Uh, we've got the crosswinds are strong in certain areas. Okay, uh, let, me, let me throw out to you two or three things that, that hopefully along the way. So again, what I challenge you to do is, is make sure that, that you can have a list that you and all the ones that teach and work with your youth, the elders, etc., that they all have helped create this list because when they all help create, there's buy-in. Everybody's on the same page. This is the direction we're going. Everything that we do is leading toward this or we need to reevaluate and see what we need to do to redo it, to tweak it, whatever it is, because this is what we want our youth to be when they leave. And if they are not that, to some degree we have to say, is the problem them or is the problem us? If the problem's us, we've got to do some changing and, and, and et cetera. In other words, this is too important to not get right. And so we must seek to get right. So in this, what are we wanting to do? The first thing that I want to throw out to us this morning is the idea that we would want our kids to know who God has created them to be. It is hard to live a life of faith if I don't know the identity that God has given me. I want to show you uh, a word in, in the Greek that is only there twice in, in all of the New Testament. And it is, it is interesting to me that it, this cannot be a coincidence that it's only in there twice and the way it's used the two times kind of tells the whole story. If you will, look at Romans, the first chapter. Romans, the first chapter. <clears throat> In Romans 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Now I want you to capture in your mind that, that phrase there. They're understood by what? The things that are made. The things that are made, there's one word in the Greek, and it's the idea to fabricate, to create, to make. Okay, And so he says, uh, you, we can look by the physical creation and we can know, the rest of this verse, even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So you see the setting here, you see the teaching here. The, Paul is, is saying to the, to the Roman brethren, he's saying, look, by the fabricating of God, we see in creation His fingerprints. Man can't do that. It has to be an eternal God. Man can't do it. He's too weak. Like we talked about last night, power. He's not capable. But God is capable. God can pull this off. Why? Because He's powerful. And so when we think about how is it that God wants us to see us? He wants us to see ourselves as His creation. If we can't get that right, we probably can't get anything else right along the way. Because we'll never be in full submission if we don't understand that and appreciate it. Amen. When God tells His story, and I, I know the chemical order of the Scripture, you know, I'm not saying that, uh, that, that, that the order is inspired, but there's a few books that I would, I'm giving you my opinion. There's a few books I strongly ordered that the providence of God was in mind when they were placing that order. For example, when you and I hoping the Bible to the first page 
what are we going to be told? I am your creator. Genesis 1 is not just about creation. Genesis 1 is about the creator. 35 times in the first 34 verses, God's name is used. Why? Because any shadow of a doubt, God wanted us to know He is our creator. The Gospel of John. When He wants to begin this entire Gospel telling us about Jesus, where does He begin? I know He begins with Him being the Word and God, but then immediately, what's the next thing? He's the Creator. Why would you submit to Jesus? Because He created you. What would you say if someone knew nothing? I got a call from my two daughters when they went and did a little bit of work for a few weeks in Africa. A summer back. Not this summer, but a summer back. And, um, and I could, you know how you know your kids. And I could tell that there was an excitement slash something else in her voice. And she said, Dad, I've got to ask you a question. I said, okay. I said, so what is it? She said, I had the neatest thing today, but I think it wasn't so neat after all because I think I really dropped the ball. And I said, okay, what, what do you got? She said, I was walking down to a village and, and I met another young girl that about my age, and my daughter was, I guess, 20, 20 or 21. Uh, and, she said, and she said, so I thought, oh, she'll be a wonderful person to study with. So she said, uh, we, we started visiting, and so I asked her, I said, do you know about Jesus Christ? She said, the girl kind of looked at her like, absolutely nothing. She said, no. She said, okay. You never heard of him? No. Okay. Well, and she reached for her Bible and she said, do you know about the Bible? The girl said, no. She said, you never heard of the Bible? She said, no. She said, okay. She said, but you know about the Almighty God? The girl said, no. I, I don't know anything about the Almighty God. And then my daughter said, Dad, where do you begin then? <laughs> and... You know, and it's so neat, isn't it, when God gives us the answers. Where do you begin? God, when you want to start with a clean slate and say, let me tell you, where, where do you begin, God? He says, well, I'll begin with Genesis 1. God, how do you want us to meet Jesus? Well, one of the Gospels I gave you, I wanted you to make sure that you knew He was the Creator. Paul, you're going to stand in Athens... And, and you got all these people that believe in gods with a little g. But they do not know the unknown God. You. So Paul, where are you going to begin? Where did he begin? He began by telling them that this is the God of creation. He's a God that made every man of one blood. He even said we're his offspring. Listen, it's one thing for our kids to just read Genesis 1 and wrote memory from the time they were little. Who made you? God did. But do they get it? <clears throat> Listen, it is fine. I'm going to interrupt this and come right back to this, but I want you to think about this timeline for just a moment. It is fine for our 6th, 7th, 8th graders. And, and if we convert 11th grader, 
It is perfectly fine for their faith and their understanding to be so young. That's the way God designed it. When we think about adolescence, what is the purpose of adolescence? Drop back for just a moment and think with me. We have a child here that may be 11 to 12 years old. And we have a young man or a young woman here that may be 22, 23, 24, 25 years old. And you look at this 11-year-old standing beside this 25-year-old, you say, wow, that's a huge difference. And somebody says, yeah, that is, that is what that's going to become in just about a decade. A little more than a decade. Someone says, how's that going to happen? Adolescence. That's what adolescence is. It's a time where, where this child, that a lot of the responsibility in their life is being given to others. Even by God, it's been given to others. But then you go down the line to where they're ending adolescence. And now their load of responsibility is much greater. And our load is supposed to be less. Here, our load is greater. And so in between, there is a transferring, there's a handing off of responsibility. And so when a child is young in the faith, we expect them to say things like, Hey, what do you believe about abortion? And their answer is, we believe that that's wrong. And when they're really young, what they mean is, my mom and dad and I, we believe that's wrong. And they get a little bit older and they mean, we at church believe that's wrong. But by the time they complete adolescence and they're into adulthood, well, their faith have grown and matured so that their answer would be, I'm convicted that that's wrong. You see, there has to be that maturation process of the faith. We understand, don't we, how much change takes place physically during adolescence? I mean, most of us, if you took a picture of us now and, and put beside a picture of us a year ago, for a lot of us, there would be very, very little change. Some of you ladies might have a major look in a hairdo or something, but, but most of us would look pretty much the same. But now you think about some of your kids. Some of your kids, you hold up a picture of them and you go back 12 months and they look really different. Adolescence, because of the continual changing, is very difficult for youth. Because they literally can wake up day to day and they can literally be someone that they've never been before. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to let that sink in why it's tough. In adolescence, the hormones are changing. And so our, our kids that are in the younger adolescent years, they're literally feeling things they've never felt before. They're thinking things that they've never thought before. They're looking in the mirror getting dressed, and they're seeing features of their body that they've never seen before. Before, because before, they didn't look like that. And they're going to school with higher expectations than ever before. And in the younger years, they stayed in one classroom all day, and the teacher just told them everything to do from step one to the end of the day. And now they have to grab the right books with the right notebook and get to the right class and be in the seat before the bell rings and remember the combination on the lock to boot. So all of a sudden, our kids... They're feeling this pressure of everything in my life is changing. I think about 
I think about a young man who now has just gotten out of the Marines. He served for five years, and when we went through boot camp, he, he went to the top immediately. And, uh, and so they began to uh, suggest that, that he work in the Marine One fleet with the President's fleet. And uh, so he was able to, to spend a lot of time at the end of his service uh, in, in the, with Marine One and all. And, and so he's got some really neat stories and all. But uh, when, when he was uh, about 13 or 14, it was already obvious that he was going to be one of these guys that could just go out and do like 100 push-ups and come out jacked. You know, he just had that body build, you know. And so I remember when Brandon first started working out, it's like he didn't work out in like six weeks and he already had guns. And, and his mom was telling me during that time, she said, yeah, we were at Upper Mills the other day and said, so I was walking along and we were beside each other talking. And I was just talking and I realized he wasn't beside me anymore. And she said, I looked back to see where he was and said, there was a mirror in the front of one of the stores. And said, he stopped at that mirror and was going like this. And she said, she said, whenever he saw me look back, he, he tried to play it off and act like it was nothing. Now, to us, we say, that's goofy. You know what? If you could look in the mirror going through Opry Mills and all of a sudden see somebody you've never seen before and that somebody was you, I guarantee you, you pause for a little bit. You might not flex as much as he did, but you might. Why am I saying this? I'm saying that it's easy for us to talk about identity and just say, well, they ought to know who they are. Well, one reason why it's easy for us to say that is most of us have been who we are for a while. But when your hormones are constantly changing and physically you're changing and your social environment, you know, where when you're in elementary school and all the guys played on recess together and all the girls played on recess, and then all of a sudden, somebody made that huge leap. And then a few more made that leap. And now you go forward a few years, and now that social dynamic's completely different. Physically, everything's changing. Sociologically, everything's changing. Responsibility-wise, everything's changing. Question. Spiritual. Religion. Do they change? If we nurture it, they change. If we want that child that enters adolescence saying, we believe this, to leave saying, I'm convicted of this, we must allow them to question what they have believed. It's the only way it can become personal. And so when that kid that's grown up in a good home, or even if they haven't, and, and they have known what they have always been taught to believe, and they find the courage to raise their hand in class, and they find the courage to say, you know, I, I, know, I know about God, I know, but, but I just want to ask you, like, how do we really know there's a God? Internally, that's the time to fist pump. It's like, whoo! We're, we're getting somewhere. If, if we can handle these next six months to a year right with this kid, this kid is going to reach the mark that we have set in line for them to leave at 18. Because God doesn't matter what question you ask as long as you ask Him. Do you think God cared if Habakkuk threw up his hands at the beginning and says, Why? 
God, you just tell me why that the wicked prosper and that the righteous are suffering. And God began to scold him and say, don't you dare ask me questions. No. Read that short little book. It's beautiful. It's beautiful because after he throws up his hands and asks the question, why? And he throws out his heart, pours out his heart throughout that first chapter. He then says, I'm going to go up to the rampart. In other words, I'm going to go to a high place and I'm going to wait for an answer from you. And God gives his answer and he doesn't answer everything that he asks. But God gives his answer and he puts his trust, back to what we were talking about last night. He puts his trust in God and at the end of the book he's praising God to the highest. I remember somebody else that asked why. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken? But notice again who he asked. When we have a problem as youth workers, our problem is when kids start asking why, going away from God to find the answer. And so if we want them to be able to mature in their own faith, we should love and welcome the environment that says, guys, please understand, we do not expect you to believe anything that we've been teaching you because we question it. Do whatever you have to do, but always take your questions to God and submit fully to what He teaches you. I'd encourage you if you do a lot of one-on-one studies, don't ever answer the question. One-on-one study, don't ever answer the question, what do you believe? I'd encourage you, you figure out what your answer is going to be, but my answer, I try to give every time. My, my answer every time is, look, it doesn't matter what I believe, but we could go see what the Holy Word of God says on what you're asking. We go. I remember one time a woman looked over at her husband. She laughed. She said, would you look at that? We've been coming in here for six weeks studying with this guy. And how many times have I asked him what he believes? And he hasn't said it once. And then she laughed. She said, but he'll give you a scripture every time. And then she looked over her husband. She said, that's the only reason I've come back to these studies. Listen, are we trying to make little imitations and robots of us or of Christ? I know Paul says, imitate me. But he's saying that he imitates God, so imitate me. And, and so if we're going to get kids beyond the adolescent years, which, by the way, our great challenge now, and, and we've got to make some time here, but our great challenge now is our culture. Our culture now, when, when you hear what a lot of people are saying, it, it's not like, hey, can you believe this? It's spoken like it's a fact. Now sociologists talk about adolescents. And they will regularly, I heard it again just this week, they will regularly say, well now, adolescence is going into the late 20s and early 30s. Because the marks that we used to use to define when a person was leaving adolescence was that they were able to leave home, get a full-time job, care for themselves, marry, and have children. And the last two, the idea was that you are mature enough, responsible enough to share in healthy relationships. And so now our culture is, I guess we could say, is really wondering what are we going to do with this term adolescence? Where we used to think that that defined the teenage years, but now we have a slew of Americans in their 20s that still, so far as if we're just going to define behavior, act like teenagers. 
And, and so I'm saying that again to say to you, the cross wins. So when we go to our youth and we expect them to grow up in faith and take responsibility, take ownership, be committed to God, be willing to sacrifice, be responsible with your faith, we're going into a headwind. We're going to get resistance because that's just the generation we're working with. And, and so we need to uh, be wise and be persistent with what we're doing. Okay, so the first place that this word is used as we look at our identity, the first place is we need to understand that God made us. And if our youth can understand that and in that realize that we submit to Him in everything, and then that we could see, you know, you could go from there that the Holy Word of God, it, it, that, that it is God's Word, and that we submit to it in everything. We don't add, we don't take away, etc. We could go all kinds of directions there. All right, let's look over in Ephesians, the second chapter, and let's see. In Ephesians 2, another usage, the only other time that this word is used. I want to remind you of just what Ephesians 2 is about. We, in the very beginning paragraph, you know, it, it was a sad situation. We're dead in the trespasses of sin. Verse 2, we're following the course of the world. At the end of verse 2, we're the sons of disobedience. And then uh, the, the children of wrath is how we were described at the end of verse 3. And then we come to that word, but. It's the sharp contrast. And, and so, but God who is what? Rich in mercy and His great love in verse 5 is saving grace has offered us this salvation. And in verse 8, it is a free gift. And in other words, it can't be merited. We can't go out and deserve it. You remember we studied last night being saved by faith. And, and Romans 5 teaches us that it is our faith by which we access grace. And other scriptures teach us that at the point of time we receive that ultimate gift of forgiveness is in the waters of baptism. And, and so now, notice here in verse 10. For we are His workmanship. And that's our same word again. In other words, we are His fabrication. We are His product. We are His work. We are His workmanship. Created where? In Christ Jesus. Why? For good works. Well, when was all this planned? which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now, you see, he's not talking about, I am your physical creator. Now he's saying, I'm inviting you. Would you allow me to be your spiritual creator? Let's create a new creation. Old things will wash away. Behold, all things have become new. Well, how could we do that? He says, you can't do it on your own. You're going, you're going to need that rich mercy and that saving grace. And I'm offering it to you because of my great love. Would you like to submit your life to me? I can create in you a new person. A workmanship. Would our youth leave us and someone say, hey, who are you? I'm a child of God. I live for the glory of God. I'm a willing servant to sacrifice in whatever way God would want for His glory. Could they articulate their identity in the Lord? Here, here's our struggle, and, and it's not just you. So many of us believe that we are 
these spiritual gifts and abilities that God has given us. It's sometimes hard to convince a 16-year-old that's a starter, quarterback on the football team. You go to him and you ask him, who are you? He says, I'm quarterback. You see a kid that has devoted their life to their music. Who are you? I'm first trumpet. I'm lead guitar player. You see that, that young man or that young woman that has devoted their life to the books. Who, who are you? I'm salutatorian. You see the, the, the girl that God has given just great beauty to. And I don't know if she'd say it out loud, but if she's not careful, the way she identifies herself is, I'm the pretty one. I can stop the room when, it walks, when I walk in. Who are you? Oh, I, I'm a youth minister. I, I'm, I'm a husband. That's who you are? Who are you? And I encourage you to give some real serious study because if we don't know our own identity, how are we supposed to help kids find their identity? If your whole identity is wrapped up in the fact that you're a youth minister, well, what happens when you get a pink slip next month? Are you not you anymore? Until you get hired again? Or that 16-year-old that's a starter quarterback. And that's who he is. And he has a car wreck on the way home. And he's paralyzed for the rest of his life. So now has he ceased to be? Well, if I'm not the quarterback, I'm nothing. Well, that's how he's going to feel if that's where his identity was found. We could go through all of those examples and we could show that those can easily be taken away. And if they were taken away, you know we're all still the same person with or without those? If you're married right now, next month, your spouse may ask to have a talk with you and you may be floored stunned, and in some ways your life may not ever be the same again. You may not be a husband or a wife in a few more months. What if you had to be like Job and bury your children? Job, who are you? I'm a father of many. Job, who are you today? I don't have any children. But you see how Job didn't give up on God. Because apparently Job did not find all of his identity in parenthood. Even when his wife forsook God, he didn't find his identity only in being a spouse. Romans 1, my identity is I'm made after the image of God. Ephesians 2, my identity is I'm the workmanship of Jesus Christ thanks to God's grace and mercy and His great love. 
And whatever roles that He gives me to play in life, if I'm a minister right now, I want to do that fulfilling the identity and never straying from whom God has created me to be. And whatever gifts and abilities He gives me, if He gives me ability to teach and preach right now, I want to remember my identity and do it the best I can for His glory. But if something happens one day in my voice and I can never say a word out loud again, I'm still who God has created me to be. And this, this identity is huge. Because if we keep ourselves, we toe the line on it, and we don't get confused. Because we like to confuse ourselves because it makes us feel good. Because usually when you pick out your identity, what do you do? If you're going to confuse your identity, you like to pick out the things you're really good at. And it's kind of a pride thing. Well, this is me. I'm really good at fill in the blank. That's me. No. You're a child of God. And be thankful that God's given you the ability to do this. Now figure out if you're really good how to do it to God's glory. All right. Now, with that in mind, I'd like for us to just read two different passages quickly, if you will. Look at 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. What if we were able to have and to lead children, our youth, in such a way that our leadership and their following God would fulfill 1 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Someone comes up to you and wants to know about Christian life. Well, you know, I've read some in the Bible, but what does it look like lived out? Can you just explain it to me? What does the Christian life look, look like lived out? Can you point over to those in your youth group? And so I tell you what, if you just watch, that, those people right there are an example of what a believer ought to look like. And we say, okay, I, I, I want to set that as a mark. That, 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 that needs to be what they grow into. How do you do it? Well, verse 13 has to do with it. Till I come... Give attention to the reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. We talked about last night how important it is to read the Holy Word of God. From there comes faith. Exhortation is the idea of calling to one side. Doctrine is the idea of, of the system of belief that God has given us that becomes our teaching. And so when, when we look and say, what is our doctrine? We studied last night that the average American teen today no matter what faith they come from, cannot articulate the doctrinal beliefs of whatever religion they come from. That's why they're all united. We talked about that last night. Isn't it interesting right here that he puts first, spend attention in the Word of God, and then he talks about doctrine. Because if you're not going to spend and give attention to the Word of God, of course you can't give attention to doctrine. And then, isn't it interesting that we're reading the Word of God and we're teaching because we're trying to invite others to decide, not say, everybody's okay. Most people are good and all good people go to heaven. And so when, when we learn and then we have the proper teaching, then we realize there is a need to exhort. There's a need to call those to the side of the Lord. Verse 14. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by the prophecy, which with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Neglect. 
Neglect doesn't mean I'm out campaigning against something. Neglect means I just forgot about it. I just let it slip. You know, you don't have to go out and say, I'm going to create the ugliest yard in the neighborhood. Just neglect your yard for about a month. Right? Any of us that grew up or still have around farms or gardens, you plant a beautiful garden. You don't have to destroy that garden. I'm going to go out and set fire to that garden. You don't have to do that if you don't want a garden. Just what? Don't go out in it for a month. Just totally neglect it. And it'll be gone. As leaders, do we neglect the gifts that our kids have? Are we aware of each youth and we're constantly stirring the gift within them? If they're going to be an example, they need to spend time in the Word. If they're going to be an example, they must use, 1 Peter 4 and 10, the gift that God has given them. But here's one we hardly ever talk about. Look at verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. As our youth grow, their progress ought to be evident to all. But what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to meditate upon these things. The idea to think and to envision. I've just studied the Word of God. What would that look like lived out in my life? The next time I'm at school and this is happening, what would it look like for me to be faithful to God in this? If our youth haven't learned how to do that, do you realize that every time they're facing something, it's probably like they're blindsided. How many times have we watched a movie for the second or the third time? And if others in the room have too, so we're not spoiling anything. How many times does it get to a certain part and you just say, hey, hey, what? watch this part. I love this part right here. And it, you look at it and go, oh, yeah. You knew the whole time what was coming. You knew what the response, the reaction was going to be. And it's like, yeah. What if we devoted ourselves to a study of God's Word and then meditating, how does that look lived out in my life? And then when that event comes along that day, we think to ourselves, this is what I've been studying about. This is it. I've already envisioned this. I've envisioned how those kids over there are going to laugh at me. And I've envisioned how these aren't going to understand it. But I've also envisioned that the Lord stands with me. And I am not giving in, and I'm not giving up, and I'm walking through this. And I envision that ultimately, it's going to be okay. Paul, what are you offering to the young man, Timothy? I'm pleading for him to see the necessity of being an example. But you've got to get in the Word and know your doctrine and call others to it. You've got to get your gift active. Stir it up. Stop neglecting it. But you also, when you study, you need to spend some time meditating so that every day is not the blind side. But it's just a day where you're carrying out what you've already studied. And we conclude with this in verse 16. Take heed. Strong plea there. Take heed. Are you going to carefully look into this? Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. 
For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Take heed. If you're going to evaluate right now, evaluate what do I expect by the time they're 18? What doctrine have I been giving? What teaching have I been giving to prepare for this time of 18? Are they saved? Am I just helping them learn how to be a good religious American? Or am I helping increase the population of heaven? So we get an idea here that the Lord knows. The Lord knows our identity. He gave it to us. He knows what we'll look at in maturation. He created that process. And so the question is, are we trying to become what He's designed for us to be? And are we trying to grow into what He's designed for us to be? Or wouldn't it be a shame if we said, I just really hadn't thought about that very much. Instead, we devoted our life to leading others closer to Him. Let's bow. Most gracious God, we thank You for the way You've created us. And our prayer is, God, that we could bring glory and honor to You in everything that You have made of us. And God, we're also mindful of so many Scriptures where You ask us to be willing to serve and to sacrifice. And God, we pray that our commitment to You is that we would give all. We pray that we never sell out or that we wouldn't fall short. If we do, God, we pray that in sorrow and repentance that we come back to You. God, we pray for the youth. We are thankful that You have given them uh, to us to work with. The blessing that they are, the energy that they bring, uh, the zeal, and even the faith that they have. Uh, energizes us and God we're thankful for them and God we pray uh, that we can direct them toward you in everything that we can truly help them to find their identity in you and no other source God we pray for wisdom in that and God we also pray for success and we'll give you all the glory and it's through your son's name we pray Amen.